Support for Yagni is provided by Arrows. Arrows is the tool for onboarding sales and success teams to close revenue faster and create happy customers. Give everybody the answer to what's next with customer onboarding software that connects directly to HubSpot. I liked our, our full-on left turn into ranting about the state of dev content today. That was fun. That felt very uh, personally gratifying. <laughs> That's good. You know, at least we'll at least we'll both be happy with it then. At least two listeners. Audience of two. Yeah. Perfect. We just have to sell our course on becoming a hot take Twitter account. How to be a nostalgia merchant. Yes. Exactly. You can buy it in 10 easy payments of $9.99 each. <laughs> I'm not sure that's going to keep the, the lights on, but uh, it's a start. <laughs> Today, I'm joined by Justin Duke. He is the founder and sole operator of Button Down, a SaaS application for sending and growing newsletters. Justin got his start in software working as an individual contributor at Amazon and Stripe before moving into engineering management. On today's episode of Yagni, we talk about whether or not we really need staging servers, if software culture is stuck in 2010, putting up intentional roadblocks, and why I am blackpilled on programming content creation. Welcome to Yagni. I tweeted out something a little bit ago that said, like, what software practices are, um, like, considered virtues but are actually sort of pointless? And uh, you had an interesting response, which was um, staging servers. So, um, yeah, I don't know if you have something queued up that you're ready to get off your chest about, uh, you know, <laughs> staging servers. Um, but maybe, yeah, like, why why did that strike you as, as you know, the the thing you replied with? My response really was born out of the fact that I've never heard of or seen or used any like, quote unquote, actually good staging environment. I think the the dream of a staging environment is this like kind of ephemeral thing that looks exactly like production or a pre-prod server, except there's no danger and you can just deploy to it and like get all of the benefits of production without any of the actual uh, drama or risk or friction. And that's just like never true in my experience. There's always some sort of thing that's missing. There's some sort of inherent jankiness and the vast majority of workflows that I've run into or heard people kind of rant about is, oh, if the goal of deploying to some sort of staging environment is to gain some level of confidence before actually deploying to production, the amount of variables and the amount of things that can break in a staging environment to the extent that it doesn't actually mirror production actually decreases your level of confidence to the point where you're spending time trying to actually maintain a staging environment or a bootstrap that works well, even though it doesn't actually give you any of the the net results that you're looking for. Yeah, I think that um, rings true to me I guess, are there times when you have like used a staging server, some kind of pre-production server where like you did find it useful or like, I know for, I know for me, it's like sometimes when we've had like dedicated QA teams or like we're trying to do like some product owner needs to like do, you know, capital A, like acceptance of a feature. Um, it's been kind of nice to do it on that kind of server, but I agree that it, it it's it, fe- it always feels like you're trying to thread like a sweet spot where 
the like if the environment is not complicated enough in production that you can actually mirror it one to one, then it's like, well, like who cares if, if if it's like so simple? Then why do we need the staging? But then if it gets to be so complicated that you would benefit from having it, then uh, it's hard to actually reproduce. So I don't know. Like, do you have any good experiences with it? Uh, that's a tough one because maybe I, answer, I think maybe the answer is no. Yeah. I, I think there there have been experiences where the thing that you're trying to get out of the staging environment is like somehow endemic to the deployment infrastructure or like literally just the ability to kind of see it on a staging server. Maybe you're trying to test like one very specific part of say uh, cross service communication or something where just like, hey, pushing this onto a new box that isn't your dev box or isn't something completely local and getting something there, like that's mission accomplished. I've seen staging environments be useful for that purpose. If you have a sufficiently complicated setup such that like your service mesh on prod is identical to that on QA, but like you can't set up a service mesh locally or something along those lines. Otherwise, I think you run into what you're talking about here with the uncanny valley of if your setup is so simple in the ideal case that you can reproduce it entirely locally. You should like push all of those investment efforts to just having a really, really strong dev box. But if you don't, then it's probably so complicated, right? That it's really hard to avoid actually hitting prod. Yeah. I I think it's like on one end of the like barbell you have like, okay, we have like a rail server and a database and like, maybe we have like background jobs and it's like, well, you can run all that locally. So what are you actually buying, you know, in staging versus production? And then, yeah, like you said, on the other end of things, if you have to set up like 20 different services and it's hard to do in dev, it seems like it's like you have a crazy complex system that then you have to also sync up in, in staging. So when I was looking, I was looking online to just make sure that I have uh, a somewhat accurate uh, picture of like what, what at least like the top Google results for like you need a staging server and like why do you need a staging server? What the benefits are and there is a there is a recent thread on Hacker News that was for an article that was like, let me find the title here. So there is a blog post called "We Don't Use a Staging Server" um, by Squeaky AI and. One of the comments on Hacker News that was like surprising to me was uh, somebody said like this is actually pretty common and like at Facebook there's no staging environment engineers have a dev environment and then the pull request is reviewed and then it just like goes into production uh, and then they use you know feature flags and like staged rollout uh, to monitor things and I guess that was surprising to me because um, and maybe you can share some of your experience in working at these bigger tech companies like that to me feels like the scale of company that would want to invest or like would have the resources for people to maintain these servers. So that was kind of surprising to me. I was thinking like, yeah, staging uh, environments, maybe not so good if you're small, maybe good if you're big, but then it's like, well, even if you are big, sometimes they, they still don't have them. For sure. And I think, it goes back a bit to the the barbell thing that you talked about, which is if you are a big tech company that has the developer productivity investment resourcing that you can justify like, hey, let's staff a team with five to seven engineers 
and just have them attack this problem? Like, do you want them to work on staging or do you want them to work on uh, the, the de- dev box, like the local development equivalent? If you assume mm-hmm. that like both of those things are roughly equivalent or commoditized investment opportunities, like the amount of time you want to be able to get from 0% confidence to say 75 or 85% confidence locally, that's so much better than optimizing for the going from, you know, 75 to 85% confidence to say 90 or 95% confidence uh, in that pre-prod step. I think... It's, and I guess, I guess, like oh, in no. production, in production, like you're going to want to have like robust monitoring and rollout stuff, anyways. So maybe it's like if we're already going to have to do this, like what, like what are we actually getting from the staging, uh, the staging site itself? Right. I found that when I'm really trying to get the last sort of like inklings of confidence uh, that theoretically something like staging would be good for. A lot of it is for things that like staging can't truly replicate unless you have like a perfect simulacra of traffic and data. Things like what are the load patterns? How does this handle uh, thundering herd scenarios? How does this handle like our peak traffic every Thursday morning? Things along those lines where often what you're going to end up having to do anyway is have you know some sort of dark read pattern of like we'll we'll read from both the old code path and the new code path and not do anything with the new code path just to see what the performance characteristics are if you're going to end up doing that before formally launching it anyway often it's just more convenient and more ergonomic to skip that pre-step of like okay theoretically it's kind of nicer if we do this in staging so long as your company or your organization has the best practices of like okay, if you're pushing to prod pretty aggressively, like Facebook and a lot of other large companies do, do so in a way that minimizes the blast radius. I think uh, often this can introduce some friction in terms of like, okay, you want to change a how you're reading an API from the back end. So you're going to have to like be able to read both the V1 and the V2 of those formats. And like that introduces a step in the deployment that you otherwise wouldn't have. But you're going to have to do all of those steps anyway in aggregate once yeah. you reach a stage where it's like you can't uh, you can't deterministically deploy to the front end and the back end simultaneously. And uh, that's kind of one of the, the growing up things you have to do once you hit a certain org size. Yeah. So like as we're recording this, I think it was uh, somewhat recently that uh, at least on Twitter, there was a bunch of tweets about, I think it was like an Airbnb push notification that got sent out. Do you know what I'm talking about? Somebody sent out a, like a test, a test environment uh, notification that, you know, was misconfigured or whatever. And like everybody that had the Airbnb app got this like test notification and, um, I guess that in my experience has been something that I think gets like swept under the rug is that it's actually like pretty hard to isolate like a staging environment while making it uh, somewhat close to production. And like, yeah, obviously the traffic is going to be a huge one, but even, uh, even data um, or just interfacing with external systems, like you have to take extra care to turn off a lot of things in staging that kind of goes against the, like this should be as close to production as possible. Um, so yeah, like notifications, I think is one good example. Like even in our um, 
even in, in my my product uh, work at Arrows, like we have we have special code in there that says like if you are on if we're on our demo environment, like and we send emails, like change who the email gets sent to to actually get sent to like Matt at Arrows dot dot two, um, because it's really easy to say like oh yeah this is a staging site. Like you can do whatever you want on here. This is where we're like testing and QAing, but it's like, well, if it's hooked up to the real mail server, it's sending out real emails. And uh, if you do things like, oh, well, like let's copy like a slice of production data into the staging environment. Like, oh, now you have like potentially like customer emails, customer data, uh, notifications that could be going out that are not supposed to go out. So I think stuff like that is just, like it's it's really easy to say like yeah you should you should have a staging server um, or even like yeah you can periodically like you know copy down data so it's representative but you have to be really careful on these like edges of the system I think where um, like another example is like file uploads um, so I worked in a system once where uh, we had file uploads and like we store those in S3 and the application had a reference to the like the blob in S3. Um, but when we copied things to staging, if you were to delete uh, like the the record uh, in the staging site, it was going out to S3 and like deleting the blob because it's like, well, yeah, well, like that's how it should work. But since we copied the data from production, it's like that actually deleted the reference in the production app. And so that was a big mess. And certainly there are like a set of tools that try to like anonymize and, and do all this. But uh, at that point, uh, you're almost like I don't I don't know if it's better to work backwards and like try to like make a safe copy of production versus like starting from scratch and making like seed data. So I don't know that that has always struck me as like the kind of hidden the hidden cost of uh, of maintaining a staging site regardless of your size. Yeah, I think the you you brought up like acceptance testing being sort of the classic example of where you want a staging site of like hey we have someone non-technical, like a product owner who wants to run through this. And again, you just have that thing of, okay, should transactional emails be on or off? I had a horror story of a a company that I I once freelanced at back in the past where they couldn't really decide. So they basically had a global flag for the staging environment, which is basically like, uh, in all caps, disable transactional emails going out. And they would flip it on or off depending on what they were trying to test, which of course just introduces another like confounding variable of what if person A flicks it on because they're like, we need to see what the new onboarding flow is like and doesn't turn it back off. And person B just assumes like, okay, no transactional emails can be going out. I'm going to put in a bunch of random Gmail addresses because I'm trying to test, you know, user imports or something like that. Um, It's a little bit terrifying. I think on the... Uh, this sort of data population or fuzzing note, I actually think I saw a YC company launch maybe this past season that was trying to just do data fuzzing as a service. And I've, I've actually seen a number of teams within larger companies try and tackle this, which is just like, hey, rather than rebuild a data set from first principles, let's have the equivalent of the world's gnarliest cron that takes like a data dump, uh, you know, cuts it to 1% of its size, fuzzes it to the point where nothing user identifying, nothing PII-ish can be discovered and plot that in QA so you have a better facsimile of what prod data looks like. I'm not sure how 
feasible it is to genericize that out such that you could have it as like a SaaS that any arbitrary company could plug into. But something like that, I think, is probably more realistic unless you have an organization that like really, really glorifies and really, really reifies dummy data generation from day one. Because that's such a hard thing to build up from first principles after you've already made a lot of progress and paid a lot of technical debt. Yeah, it seems like like a very deceptively hard problem. And then to so like to take that as an assumption that you can get a good representative data set from production into a staging environment, like that just seems to be in a lot of these articles and, and blog posts, like uh, treated as like, oh, it's like a precondition that has already been met that like we can do this. So like, therefore, like best practice says you should deploy to staging first. So I think that's where a lot of this stuff kind of falls down in practice. At least that's been my experience is, is like, yeah, like if, if you could do that, sure. But we currently can't do that. So <laughs> why are like, why is this like treated as, uh, you know, like a given that you must, you must have a staging environment. Yeah. And it really comes down to like, how feasible is it really? And if the answer is feasible with, uh, X hundred hours, paid every year worth of engineering investment. Can you figure out a better, more useful way to spend that time and energy? I feel like the answer is always yes. Mm -hmm. Do you think that staging environments made more sense 10 years ago than they do now? Absolutely. I think (laughs) a lot of practices probably made much more sense when the rate of software change was much lower And the number of moving variables in any given software environment was much lower, right? Like if you could control the shape and reification of any given like SaaS or any given code base and say, okay, we have absolute confidence that like the superstructure of this code base is going to remain the exact same for the next three to five years. Then I think the calculus of investing in a staging environment makes way more sense because all the things that you think are going to, no matter what, break in the fullness of time are suddenly much more resilient. But the reality is, at least in in my experience, there are too many moving parts. Like it is uh, Mm -hmm. such a full-time job to keep those things in the right buckets, in the right condition. 10 years ago, I think, and maybe this is a, a rant or a uh, old man shakes hand at cloud unto itself of like, uh, back in 2010, like the median software environment was just much more static and didn't change that much. I think yeah. in that world, it totally makes more sense. Yeah. I, I find myself like in the same kind of, uh, camp where, uh, I'm not sure if it's like, you know, rose colored glasses or just like, that was the time that I like was the most formative was like when I was starting my career, but it does seem like a lot of the common advice and like practices are like sort of stuck from that, that time. And it's, you know, uh, when I think about like, like books or conference talks or technologies, it's like, there's a lot of stuff that's hanging around from like 2010 that some of it is still good. Some of it has maybe like we've lost the context in which it was created but we're still applying it. So I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe I should find someone who is, uh, much older or much <laughs> younger. 
I, I feel like we are going to look back at like the corpus of technical blogging from say, gosh, 2015 and 2020, where I feel like Kubernetes containerization microservices were like very, very du jour because we were at the point where most of the big tech companies were adopting them. And then when folks from those companies splintered out to start their own thing, uh, they kind of like proselytized those practices. And now I think yeah. we're, maybe this is optimistic. I think we have all now co collectively realized, oh, that probably wasn't a great idea. Like you can start pretty, pretty simple with a lot of these things and just graduate to Kubernetes and that world when you really need to. I wonder if we're going to look back on all of the blog posts of like, here's how you deploy a new Rails app to Kubernetes within 15 minutes so you can scale infinitely, even though you don't have a single paying customer. Is like, ah, we kind of just have to throw this in the dark ages bin. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. Like, And, and I think about, I don't know, it just, it feels like something happened in that time and like everything just... Uh, there's a, a switch flipped or something and like definitely there's more people like posting on Twitter and online and on different social media than before. So I, w I guess I, maybe it's part of it being more decentralized. There isn't these kind of central uh, publishing channels that then create like sort of a monoculture of like, this is what the practices are. Cause I think back to like a book, like the pragmatic programmer, right? Like that's like, uh, was published, I think, in like 2006 or something, uh, if, if not earlier. And it's like, there hasn't really been, a, at least that has crossed my path, there hasn't been another book like that, that you would say is like sort of like universally like recommended regardless of your, you know, domain or tech stack or whatever. And it just feels weird. And, and maybe it's because like things are becoming more niched or like it's easier to find a community like specific to, like you can find, 25 ebooks on like the best practices for like building a react app with redux versus like before you have to actually have a physical book that needs to get published. So it has to be about general principles and it, like you can't, you can't update the blog post or the screencast or whatever with, with an addendum. So you have to sort of try to hedge some of, of the, <laughs> of the nuance into it. I don't know. Do you think there's anything to that? Yeah. I feel like, at least from, from my perspective, there's so much more, and I, I mean this in a positive way, there's so much more like 101 content, which is like very, very proper nouns based, as you're saying, like, here's how you set up, yeah. you know, React plus Redux. Here's how you set up uh, a Next.js deployment. Here's how you do like this specific job to be done and less focus on sort of like the craftsmanship or the metier of it all. like. Uh, you know, Ruby Cohen's type stuff, practical programming. Um, I wonder, this is just kind of like anecdotal, but I wonder how much of that is the supposition becoming that the way you get much better at programming is mentorship and sort of like being placed in an organization where you can learn synchronously from other folks. And I kind of hope that isn't a permanent trend because when I was first kind of going from like literally learning how to program in Python to trying to be an accomplished programmer and someone who like took a lot of care and respect of, of what I did, like 
I was, I didn't have a network. I wasn't working with folks who I felt like were bringing me to the next level. I had to consult like bloggers that I, I really admired and respected. I had to read through programming books and go through SICTI and, and all of those things. And if anything, I feel like the opportunity for those in the, you know, uh, to use a phrase I hate, the creator economy, like, I feel like there should be more opportunity to do that, not less. I'm kind of curious as to why the, the, the market or desire has kind of shifted away from it. Yeah. And maybe I am just like ultra, uh, as the kids would say, black pilled on, <laughs> uh, on this, but it, it does seem now that like, instead of, um, getting like getting better at the craft of software, it's like, how can you get a bigger audience to like, you know, monetize in, in, like you said, in like this, this creator, creator sense, it's like, you know, and I think, I think some of that has to do with the fact that like more people are entering the industry. So there is more demand for that, but it seems like there's an entire swath that somewhat dominates the conversation of people that are like, Hey, I want to go to a boot camp and I want to like buy this course on like Fang interview prep so that I can get a job at, you know, one of these giant companies. And then from there you transition into your career as like a tech influencer vlogger where you make YouTube videos, uh, that consist of 80% of you, like going to the cafeteria and ping pong table. And then, you know, the, the other 20% are like, Oh yeah. And then I like coded on this API for a little bit. I think, um, Brian Lovin, who's uh, a designer at GitHub, I believe, uh, has this metaphor that I'm probably going to butcher, but he talks about sort of like the the creator spiral where it's if you're doing, you know, one of the, the hashtag learn in public things or you're somehow monetizing your influence, there's a really, really strong temptation to shift from talking about, say, uh, Rails programming or talking about icon design or insert thing here to talking about talking about that thing. And it can be become very, very recursive and fractal to the point where you're yeah. selling like an info product about how to sell info products to people uh, who want to learn how to sell info products about info products. Like it's very, very easy yeah. to kind of go down into uh, the narcissistic spiral of people will buy this thing and I just spent 18 months talking about this topic. So I'm just going to reorient everything that way. That might be one of the downsides of like having such a very, very transparent and monetizable audience relationship. Yeah, it is interesting just to think about, think about all that context and, and how just like, it's almost like societal, like, you know, let's go big picture here. It's like societal changes in the, in the past, like 10 or 15 years have like led to software being uh, like seen as a more desirable field, which leads to more people, which, you know, in some ways is, is good because I think this is like a good career to have and can provide value to the world. Um, but yeah, it's like at some point you're sort of diluting the, the, the craft a little bit. And, and as more people come in, like you said, there's more, more demand for like one-on-one -on -one content. And then there's also like more opportunity for people that want to like, uh, you know, sell shovels during the, the gold rush type thing. It's true. And I like, I always feel a little bit ornery when I see the, uh, 
I don't even know if there's a term for this, but like the uh, very, very basic tweet where it's like, here's how you add two strings in Python type thing of like, why is this person farming out like uh, intro to Python stuff and having that be like the the pathway to mastery. But I, I have to like remind myself too that I'm not the tar- target audience for that kind of stuff. And like, there really is a large and booming one. Um, I feel like one of the things that I'm grateful for is the first like 10 years I was paying attention to programming and sort of SaaS development and all of these things. Like there were a huge swath of folks all the way between like, uh, here's how you kind of get a basic SaaS up and running. Here's how you do marketing. Here's how you do scaling. Like I felt like I could learn from each and every step from folks who had actually done the thing. They weren't influencers or sort of like uh, content creators first and foremost. They were doing that job first and foremost. And then they were also trying to talk about it in public. I think maybe that's where some of the like lost innocence to use a truly tortured phrase comes from is that like now the temptation is to have that be the main thing. Like there are so many people I see on Twitter through their very aggressive like promoted tweet stuff where it's you're, you're trying to talk about how to build a SaaS or how to scale like a Python application or something like this. And like, you don't do that. That's not your full-time job. Your full-time job is some sort of educational or some sort of uh, auxiliary yeah. role. And there's nothing wrong with that. But like, I'm going to put much less stock in what you say in terms of like pricing strategies. If it's clear that you've never actually like priced and sold a SaaS before. Like, I think there yeah. has to be some level of true learned experience or true skin in the game. Yeah. It's, it's like the out, the outcome in the past of like, I need to learn this skill to like, you know, ship this thing at work or to hit some like business result has been changed with like, I need to get hired for this job so that like I can then write a course about how I got hired, (laughs) you know, for the job. Yeah. I wonder too, like, it, it seems like a lot of what happened as like tech sort of boomed in like the, the, you know, the 2010s or whatever, at some point there was like, uh, there was more people working at these big companies than like there is sort of, I'll say like work to do or like, uh, there, like the, the winners by like, you know, the power law, like sort of took, took everything and like companies like Google, it's like, it's so profitable that it doesn't matter that they have. 500 engineers that are uh, like sort of, and I'll say this like disparagingly, but I don't really mean it like not doing anything. Right. Um, And it feels like you need, like it would be natural that like eventually like new companies would start up that were not that way. And like, that would be a place where new learning and new thought leadership type stuff would come from. It seems like that is like sort of like the kind of crypto land right now uh but maybe that environment is just also so poisoned by like uh the the money and the sort of snake oil uh type type stuff that that it's hard to uh see it in the same light as like oh yeah like i don't know like i look fondly back at like oh yeah when github was like getting big and like you could like hear talks from the people that were like the first hundred employees and it doesn't doesn't seem like there's been that next wave of of that yet. Maybe I've just missed it, but I, I definitely agree 
And I think part of it is sort of the, like, uh, the, what is it? Hard times create hard men. Like th that sort of meme of like, mm -hmm. there is a cyclical nature to all of this. And I think we, we will come back to a world where more people are doing uh, sort of like hunting and figuring out what the new exciting things are and building them and talking about it as opposed to sort of like the uh, metaphorically sedentary lifestyle of I'm going to work at a fang for four years and like probably not be pushing the world too, too forward. And again, I, I say that with no judgment whatsoever. Um, that being said, I think I have more local optimism that like people are building a lot of really, really cool stuff at any given point in time. Like even right now, I think looking at, uh, to take an example, like the, swath of sort of like Heroku, except for 2022 infrastructure providers that are coming out. They're all like really cool. You look at Render, you look at Fly.io, you look at Railway, like there is actual technological innovations happening, whether it's stuff like using Nixpack. So you have these really huge build times that are now like seconds instead of minutes, like things along those lines, people are building really, really aggressively. I think what you're seeing is perhaps the profile or like the the median arc of an engineer has shifted such that like now i think it's almost a, a rite of passage or an expectation that like hey you're gonna try and build a new company or be one of these people who is a really really strong architect and a presenter you have to do a bit more of your time than you otherwise would by spending, you know, four to six years at a FANG or uh, mm -hmm. working in some less glamorous capacity for a little bit first. But it's it's hard to tell also because 10 years ago, when I was digesting all of that information, any person, like any individual who was on a stage and talking about a concept was so much more impressive to me. I was 22 years old. I had no idea what half of the concepts I was digesting were. And someone being in that position, regardless of where they uh, came from or who they were, or what their background was, I think I was just predisposed to be much more impressed because I was a more novice engineer, as opposed to now when I'm all cynical and jaded about these things. Yeah, I think I think there is just something about like the internet has made everything um, like more widely distributed too. Because yeah. I feel like when I was younger too, it would be like like you said, you're, you're sort of seeing things from like a really local sense of like, yeah, this, this person is like the best programmer I know, but it's like, yeah. Cause like, there's only like four people that know how to program like at your local high school or something versus now it's like, Oh, like this guy on Twitter has, uh, you know, a hundred thousand followers and he's, you know, a 13 year old that, you know, is building his own startup or whatever. And these people were probably always there, but not, you like didn't have exposure to them and now it's like oh if you want to if you want to learn to code it's like one of the first things you need to do is like you know get on twitter because that's where all the learning to code people are and yeah it's it's interesting which i i think goes back to your previous point of for better or for worse software development is like a prestige position now yeah compared to say 2007 2005 like uh a lot of people who would otherwise like go into iBanking or go into uh, you know law school or something along those lines, like mm -hmm. they're entering tech, whether it's yeah. 
through development specifically or PM or something along those lines, like that's still a much more common path than it used to be. And it has a level of, uh, I don't even know if prestige is the right word, but like normalcy that, that it didn't. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely like more mainstream, uh, normie as they would say. (laughs) Uh, so I think that if we try to big, bring it back, it's basically like Mark Zuckerberg's fault that people still advocate for staging servers because his company started the rocket ship growth that really caused all of software engineering culture to get stuck in 2012. Perfect. I think uh, the evolution of the hot take, which is uh, not just staging env- environments are a bad idea, but staging environments are a bad idea, and it's Facebook's fault specifically, is perfect. It's always <laughs> useful to have a... Uh, a enemy that Have you a target. throw your slings and arrows at. Someone to blame, yeah. <laughs> do, you th- do you think the existence of staging servers makes people like lazier because it's like a place you can dump code without taking accountability for it? Like, well, we put it in the staging server. If it breaks in production, like we, we couldn't have known. <laughs> I don't know if lazier is the word I would use because... Again, I think dealing with staging environments just requires so much effort. I, I, I think it gives people false confidence. And like the, uh, the metaphor I always love is like you're trying to navigate a curve of confidence level in your code change. And often people will think that bumping something to staging is going to get you to like 95 or 99%, uh, which is pretty close to 100%. So then you push it out mm-hmm. to, to prod and you yep. get like your asymptotic 99.99% or whatever. And I think in reality, often it it's a no-op compared to uh, your local deployment that like has purely local data, but is otherwise kind of the same. I think the best case yep. scenario where you have someone who let's say you have an organization that is pretty well invested in staging and like, it's not broken all the time. It, it's a little janky, but it works, but it takes a lot of effort. Like there's, there can be laziness if then you say, okay, it's working fine and staging, therefore it's good to go. Like that's, that's a big leap of faith to say like this environment is so close to the real one that, that we're done. Mm-hmm. Cause I think, Mm-hmm. Again, regardless of what folks might blog about, I think in practice, it's very rare that you're not doing some level of production testing, which is not to say like only test in prod, LOLOL. It's more like that has to be one of the things you do once you hit a certain level of fragility or velocity, because you need to be exercising, yeah. exercising that code path in mm-hmm. all scenarios. And if you skip the production exercise, like that can be really, really dangerous. What do you think about staging server uh, as good because it is a roadblock and the average developer is not good uh, and should be it should have speed bumps and roadblocks put in front of them to prevent bad things from happening? <laughs> I I like intentional speed bumps and roadblocks in most scenarios. Um, not because like any average developer is bad so much as like we are all bad once we hit uh, a certain threshold of complexity, right? I think what is scariest to me is like some sort of Looney Tunes cartoon speed bump that is like there 80% of the time. Like when it comes mm-hmm. to trying to get production uh, confidence, 
the biggest thing you need is a level of reliability that like you perform. It's like a checklist manifesto thing, right? Like you perform this thing a hundred times. The outcome should be the same a hundred times, even if that outcome is super annoying and largely exists as a deterrent or as something that intentionally slows down velocity. If you have a staging environment where you're still trying to invoke some sort of judgment call of like 80% of the time, this is good enough to go, but you know that like, oh, we rotate out the database every Thursday. So you might run into some weird stuff if you're hitting staging on Thursdays or things mm-hmm. of that nature. That's where I get a bit of pause. How about you? Yeah, I think it's tough because you have, yeah, you'd have something that's like a checklist, but if, if you know that like, oh yeah, but don't actually care about this, this step, if it, if it fails, like that's, that's kind of like the road to, um, like losing, like you lose confidence in the process or like the process gets watered down so much that it loses the, the original meaning. Imagine a test suite that had tests that were decorated with a, Hey, 20% of the time, like roll a D five. And if you get a five, if this test fails, don't worry about it. Like it's fine. Just pass the test runner anyway. That's like the thing that terrifies me because that that's kind of like a bit of organizational rot that if that starts out with just one test, it's going to expand in time to be everything. And then at that point, you don't have any confidence in the test. Right, right, right. You'd almost like, I think the naive, the naive thing would be like, that any test is better than no test, but really it's like, well, if this test is unreliable, then it's maybe worse than not having a test because then maybe you'll think, oh yeah, there's no test for this. I better like be extra careful. Exactly. We've been running into something similar at work where we have, uh, we have error monitoring, but there's a whole bunch of errors that we say like, yep, we know that these are happening and like, it's not a problem. Um, but we haven't figured out a good way of like turning them off or ignoring them. So what it does is it just makes it so that like what used to be, if there's ever anything in this like alerts channel, then like immediately like stop and resolve it so that we get this back down to zero has turned into like, well, except for this error, except for this error, except for this error. And then suddenly our strategy of like zero, like zero alert uh, exception monitoring, like uh, we've lost, we've lost that like, uh, you know, we were like holding, holding the line and like, it's been breached. And now we're saying that like, oh yeah, we're okay with less test coverage. Cause we have zero like exceptions is like actually not true anymore. But then we didn't like go back and fix the test coverage. <laughs> They've done studies to that exact effect in hospital environments where you imagine a hospital room, right. And you've got 20 data points. Like you've got, uh, EKGs, you've got, you know, visual data, you've got audio data. And just the presence of all of those creates uh, alert fatigue, right? Where you're hearing and processing so many things that your body is literally incapable of de- deciphering what is high bandwidth useful signal from low bandwidth, just noise. And even if something can be useful in certain circumstances, like if even a small portion of the time it's not, it's probably a net negative for your overall operational health. Yeah. Well, I think I've reached the point where uh, 
I feel like staging servers fit squarely in the 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 midwit uh you know meme format of uh you know the bottom of the bell curve is like you know just just send it to production and uh the middle is uh you know staging servers with all these rollouts and anonymized data and uh you know gated releases and things like that and then we've got uh, you know the top of the bell curve that is like you know just push it to production yeah i i think the um, the, the bell curve meme is more accurate than it is inaccurate a lot of the time. Like, as long as you have really, really robust feature flagging, operational detection, perf detection, all of those things, which you generally want to have anyway, even if you're not doing quote unquote staging testing within prod, mm-hmm. uh, it's just really the amount of stuff you get out of a true production environment, traffic, data, all the things we've chatted about, it's so hard to replicate that. And I find myself firmly on the like low IQ side of like, I'm going to do the theoretically dumb thing because it is often yeah. so expedient, both short term and long term. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it doesn't exactly fit because I don't think, I don't think either of us are saying like replace a staging server with nothing. I think we're saying like, you're probably better off with things like using um, like an NGROC tunnel to let people preview stuff on your local environment if you need someone to do like a quick spot check and then like in production having feature flags and other like safe rollout features so that deploying like doing a big deploy is not a common occurrence so then you wouldn't need to necessarily use staging as like your place to find the like uh you know unknown unknowns exactly Cool. Well, then I think we can uh, answer the question. Uh, staging servers, do we need them? Justin, yes or no? You're not going to need it. You're not going to need it. And it's a no from me for this one. Uh, so yeah, thanks for joining us as we continue to spew hot takes and hopefully make you rethink some things that you uh, haven't thought about in a while. Show notes, links, and a transcript can be found at yagni.fm. Today's guest was Justin Duke, founder of Button Down. You can find Justin on Twitter at JMDuke, and I'm your host, Matt Swanson, and you can find me on Twitter at underscore Swanson. Until next time, just remember, you ain't gonna need it.